morning, church. <clears throat> Before I read our scripture for this morning, I just want to remind everyone, and I'm sure you've seen the uh, dollar for missions offering uh, at the two entrances to the uh, building today. Uh, our offering this month goes to Aiden Baldwin, and uh, Aiden is 17 years old. He's living in Serbia right now with his mother and father or missionaries there, but his desire is to attend a Grace College in Winona Lake, Indiana, and uh, there's a scholarship available to students. If we can match, if we the money that we give, the school will match that money. And so we're giving today for Aiden up to a thousand dollars. Actually, they'll match. So uh, just encourage everyone to give generously, and uh, know that it's going to a real good cause. Let's uh, turn our attention now to God's Word as we begin a new series this morning. We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he put the man whom he formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and Honest Stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And then, as you know, you're common with this passage. Uh, God decides it's not good for man to be alone, and he creates a helper for man, Eve. He names the animals. But then as we move along in our narrative in chapter 3, we come to probably one of the saddest accounts in the Bible, and that is the temptation of the serpent, Eve disobeying, leading her husband, and man falling into sin. And so we experience that, and then we move into verse 22 of chapter 3, as I conclude our reading this morning. After the fall of man, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. May God give us ears to hear his word. Amen. Thanks, Dave, for reading that critical passage of Scripture. 
upon which we will focus our attention this morning. Please listen to the words of an esteemed theologian of our day, actually. He writes, We are creatures of longing. When we misdiagnose the object of our longing, we become frustrated and disappointed. Our longings for relationship often get frustrated in conflict. Our longings for satisfaction get frustrated in discontent. Our longings for significance get frustrated by our own inadequacies. J.R.R. Tolkien diagnoses the roots of our longing. He says, we all long for Eden. We are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature is still soaked with a sense of exile. That is, feeling that we're not living where we really belong. Now back to the theologian and his quote. The longings of our hearts are frustrated from this exile, but these longings are only properly satisfied in the dwelling place of God, originally found in Eden. God's presence in His dwelling place satiates our longings for relationship, satisfaction, and significance. And the opening chapters of Genesis show how God intended those longings to be properly satisfied in Eden. God made us for Himself as His images in the garden temple. God's presence gives life and purpose in Eden. So we should not wonder that, in the words of Augustine, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. And so ends the quote from G.K. Beale. Brothers and sisters, can you appreciate what the writer is saying? Do you acknowledge with Him in the deepest recesses of your heart and soul and, yes, even psyche, that you are a creature of longing? that you feel the exile. Even if you have been born again and are converted and have been reconciled to God through Christ and now enjoy communion with God, is there not some kind of longing for a deeper relationship and a deeper satisfaction in God? Deeper than the one you presently enjoy characterized by the plague of remaining sin, which drags you down and distracts you from a pure and undivided devotion to God. Surely, your answer to my question is yes. A thousand times, yes. You see, the problem, brothers and sisters, is that we no longer live in Eden. Someday we will. But for now, the problem is that we do not live in Eden. 
And we long for the day when Eden will be destroyed. Paradise has been lost, as Milton wrote, but it will be restored. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, and we were banished from the garden in our federal head, Adam. Cherubim with flaming sword were placed at the only entrance to the garden to prevent entrance and access to the tree of life. Now, don't misunderstand me. Adam and Eve were reconciled to God after their horrible disobedience. Their sins were symbolically atoned for through the bloody death of an innocent victim, and they were clothed with a symbolic righteousness. They were truly saved by faith. They were truly forgiven. God was truly their Savior, but they were no longer living in that qualitative, perfect presence of God that they once enjoyed when he walked with them in their state of innocence. I have a question for you again. Isn't it easy for us to imagine that Adam and Eve must have frequently reflected and reminisced with sadness and with longing for what that presence of God was once like? Can't you just see them talking long after their banishment from the garden and reminiscing the horror of what they lost? We who know the Lord have never experienced the intimacy of communion that Adam and Eve enjoyed. Never. Because we were never sinless. And we never lived on an earth that was not cursed. But there is something in our souls that aches and longs for it. We know God, and we know something of His presence, and we know something of relationship with Him, and we know something of satisfaction and something of significance, but we have never known the qualitative and quantitative degree of intimate, precious, unhindered, perfectly satisfying communion and fellowship with God that Adam and Eve experienced in an uncursed garden. But you know what? Not just Christians have these longings for Eden. You, my dear unconverted friends, unconverted children, young people, high schoolers, college students, adults, perhaps visitors with us this morning, you also know something of the longing for Eden. You know in your very soul and in the deep recesses of your psyche that you were made for something more than what you're presently getting out of this world and this life. You were made to know and love and serve God. You were made for relationship with Him. You were made for satisfaction in Him. You were made for significance through Him. And though Eden has not yet been restored, the communion and fellowship with God resulting in real life, real joy, real peace, real purpose, real significance can be found in God through Jesus Christ. You can find all of that even now through the Savior. But it can only be found 
in Jesus Christ. Now this morning we begin, as has been indicated, an Advent series. The word Advent technically means arrival. In this case, the arrival of what we so rejoice in at this time of year. The, revive, the, the wonderful arrival of Jesus Christ in His incarnation. The first arrival, the first Advent. And Advent has come to mean the four weeks that precede the birth of Christ. Now there will be a second Advent that also has been mentioned of our Savior when He comes to take His bride to Himself. So obviously there are two Advents, the first and the second, and we live in that inter-adventual period. But we're thinking about the first Advent. And in this series, this four-part series, there will be a somewhat unique and repeated focus in this series. And that repeated focus will revolve around the purpose of our Savior's coming. What would you say was the primary purpose of His first advent, His first coming? Think about it for just a moment. If you had to put it very succinctly, possibly even in one word, how would you answer that question? What was the primary purpose of our Savior's first coming. Now, I might surprise you in saying that if you said redemption or to pay for our sins or to reconcile us to God, you would be wrong. The main and primary purpose of our Savior's first coming was not to redeem us. Yes, that is the overarching theme of the Old Testament and much of the New Testament. But that was not His primary purpose in coming. Nor was it to justify us. Nor was it to begin the process of sanctification. Nor was it to adopt us. Nor was it to reconcile us to Himself. Nor was it to glorify us, mind and body, someday. Those were not the primary purposes of our Savior's first coming. All of those redemptive benefits were high on the list of divine purpose, no doubt. And they are all essential to the ultimate purpose. But they were, in fact, and they are means to the ultimate and highest of all purposes. You know what it is? God's ultimate goal in both creation and redemption was that He might dwell with us. That He might dwell with us. That we might dwell with Him. We cannot dwell with a God like our God unless our sins have been atoned for. We cannot dwell with this God unless we have been reconciled to Him and pronounced just in His sight, and become righteous through the righteousness of Christ. We couldn't dwell with Him, but the point is, those things were a means to the ultimate end, and the ultimate end is to dwell with God, and to have God dwell with us. That was God's ultimate goal 
in creation and redemption, that he might dwell in the midst of his people. God dwelling with his people in the garden temple, the borders of which were to be ever extended throughout the whole earth until the knowledge of God and the glory of God covered the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. That was God's intention even in the Garden of Eden. And so this series will focus on God dwelling with His people. And if you will, it could also be described as a series focusing on temple. Because the temple is where God dwells with His people. We can know what God's ultimate purpose was by simply seeing how He designed it all to end. And that's because the purposes of God are always going to be realized. They're always going to come to fruition. So as strange as it may seem, let me ask you for just a moment, keep a marker there in the Genesis passage, go with me all the way to the other end of the Bible, to the other bookend, Revelation chapter 21. And I want you to see with me how it all ends. Because that reveals the purpose of God. And it's going to be Pastor Keith's privilege to open this beautiful passage. And I don't think in any way that I'm stealing any thunder. I hope I'm just whetting your appetite. His ultimate purpose in creating man and putting man in the Garden of Eden, which in effect was a temple, a place of God dwelling with man, was, as we're going to discuss in just a few moments, spoiled and short-circuited and forfeited. But was God's ultimate goal to dwell with men foiled? See how it ends. Look at Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Literally, in the original, his peoples. And God himself will Be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then we have the beautiful description of the descent of the new Jerusalem, which is clearly a symbolic picture. But lest I forget, could I just make this observation that when you read the description of the New Jerusalem and the dimensions of the city, not only are you struck with the vastness of it, but you're struck with the proportions of it because it is 1,200 stadia wide, 1,200 stadia deep, 1,200 stadia high. That's strange. If you translate that into miles, it's around 1,500 miles. Have you ever seen a city? 
that was 1,500 miles. This is big. But it's not literal. Have you ever seen a city that was as high as it was wide? Have you ever seen a city that was two miles high? There is no building yet that is a mile high on the face of the earth. How can a city be 1,500 miles high? Why are all the dimensions the same? Clearly, this is a symbol. It's a cube. And when we go back into our Old Testaments, and yes, into the temple, we find that the holiest of all places, the holy of holies, was a cube. And it represented the immediate, intimate presence of God. And what we are learning through John and through this vision is that when our Savior comes back at the second advent, and the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, it is a worldwide holy of holies. It isn't merely 1,200 stadia. That's a symbolic number. And what God intended in the Garden of Eden will be realized again. God's goal in the Garden of Eden was that we would multiply and replenish and subdue the earth for the glory of God and love and obey Him and propagate the knowledge of God until it covered the entire earth. It didn't happen, did it? Because of sin. So did God say, well, I guess I failed in that. I don't know how I can make that happen. Or was God determined from the beginning, knowing what would happen, that he would not only have a people, but that he would dwell with them. That he would dwell with them. That was his divine purpose from the beginning, from creation. That is his divine purpose in redemption. And then when we just take a little peek into chapter 22. By the way, could we just notice verse 22 of chapter 21 before we do that? 21, chapter 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So is there a temple or isn't there a temple? Well, there's no temple that can be seen, but there is a temple. And it represents the presence of God. And in that day, we who know the Savior and have been redeemed during our life will live in the immediate presence of God and the Lamb. They will be our temple. And then, if I could, just quickly in chapter 22, verses 1 through 4, it says, Then the angels showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, a tree of life. Sound familiar? With its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its twelve yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. I will probably make reference to this in just a few moments, but this is how it all ends, okay? So if that's what God determined it to end like, it gives us insight into what his original intention was. 
Now, maybe there's a little theological dilemma in your mind, thinking, well, do you mean God actually intended something and didn't bring it to pass? Now, it's an ideal that God had communion with him, dwelling with him. He knew what man would do. It's all included in his decrees. I understand that, but it's our privilege to think about God's intent in the Garden of Eden. And God's intent in the Garden of Eden was to create a place where he might dwell with his creatures in love and worship and communion and fellowship. But it was forfeited by sin. And so we have a bookend and another bookend. And in between, we will see how God restores communion with Him and dwelling in His presence. The first chapters of the Old Testament, we find God basically up in heaven. He comes down occasionally to visit and to say something to someone. But it isn't until we come to the second part of the book of Exodus, the second half, that he actually comes down to dwell in a very special place. Pastor Mark is going to open that up to us with regard to the tabernacle and with regard to the temple. And then we find that he comes down again in the New Testament in his own person, the second person of the Trinity, God with us. We sang about it. Emmanuel means God with us. And Jesus Christ becomes the temple, and he also creates a new temple called a church, wherein the Holy Spirit dwells. Pastor Jonathan will open that aspect of the temple to us. And as I've already hinted, Pastor Keith will come and say the ultimate temple is God himself. So I've just done a little biblical theology for you, showing you the purpose of God in redemption. And I want, I want to say to you again, the ultimate purpose of God in redemption is not redemption. The ultimate purpose of God in redemption is that he will dwell with his people and that his people will dwell with him. So you can see what happened in Eden. Sometimes we define the gospel in terms of a macro and a micro grid. The macro grid is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And my message, taking us back to the Garden of Eden, includes the first two, creation and the fall. Pastor Mark and Pastor Jonathan's messages will take us into the progressive Revelation of redemption and the work of God in restoring this communion with himself and our ability to dwell in his presence. And then, as I said, Pastor Keith will come and deal with the restoration. So, what shall I do now in the remaining time that I have? I want to just very quickly do three things. I want to just persuade you in a sense, prove, but not, not in a tedious kind of courtroom way. I want to prove that the garden was designed by God to be a temple, a dwelling place with his people. And then I want to draw your attention in the second place to this. I want to make this very clear, that we have been banished from the garden. And that banishment is what necessitates the birth of Jesus Christ. So if you're wondering, why would a series on the second advent, or excuse me, the first advent, the first coming of Jesus, 
Start in the Garden of Eden. Have I said enough yet for most of you to connect some of the dots and say, well, I think what you're saying, Pastor Ted, is that the garden was designed to be a place where God dwelt with his people and they dwelt with him. And that was sadly, sadly is too weak of a word. It was horrifically forfeited. And Adam and Eve were banished from that dwelling place. Will mankind ever be able to dwell with God again? Yes. He's going to send a Savior. And that Savior is going to do all of those things that are essential in order for us to dwell in the very presence of God. He's going to come and He's going to live in our place, a perfect life. And He's going to work out a perfect righteousness which becomes ours by faith. And He's going to purchase the wonderful regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to bring us back to life and open our understanding to understand the gospel and to flee to the Lord Jesus. And He's going to put all of this into motion. And then... He's going to come back and finish the job and restore Eden where God's people dwell in His perfect presence with no fear. So that's the second thing. Just to, I just want to make a comment about that. So I want to prove that the garden was designed to be a temple. I want to make clear that banishment from the garden is what necessitates the coming of Christ And then finally, just a few applications for all of us, particularly for those who are lost and for those of us who know the Lord and have been reconciled to Him. Now, what shall I say about proving that the garden was designed by God to be a temple or a dwelling place? Well, I can't prove it by taking you to the passage that Dave read and show you the word temple. I can't do that because the word temple is not there. What is there is God dwelling with Adam and Eve. Particularly in chapter 3 when God comes back after the fall and does what he was previously doing, walks in the garden to confront Adam and Eve. It was his custom. They communed with God on a daily basis. How long they lived in that relationship before they fell, no one knows. It could have been a long time. It could have been a very short time. But this much is true, that before they fell, they lived in direct communion with God. He dwelt with them. He walked with them. And when we take the concept of God walking, we find that repeated in many, many places in the rest of the Bible, particularly as the theme of temple evolves, if I can use that language. I'm not going to turn you to all these passages, but God speaks about His walking with Adam and Eve. He speaks about walking in the tabernacle, moving about in it in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 23 and in 2 Samuel 7. God came among His people. He moved with them. He was with them. And when we start to look at what the tabernacle and the temple 
we're like, we see so many patterns finding a fulfillment that were first rooted in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was located on an elevated place, sort of like a mountain. Maybe not a very high mountain, but a mountain of sorts. No wonder the rest of the Bible speaks of the Temple Mount, the Mount of the Temple. There was a river that flowed out of Eden. It flowed Rivers on level ground do not flow. It flowed downhill. It was refreshing. Flat rivers do not flow. There is no such thing. It's a lake. And there is that river. And I just read for you from Revelation chapter 22 about the river that flows out of the New Jerusalem. And if we had time, I would take you back to Ezekiel where we have another prophetic picture, eschatological picture of the ultimate, the ultimate final temple, and you find that there is water gushing out from under the altar of this eschatological temple that will find its fulfillment in the new Jerusalem. The river is central to God's picture of life-giving, refreshing power. There are the trees. You saw the tree of life in the ultimate temple. And it was for healing. And there are all the beautiful stones. If we would go back to the passage David read for us, we would see the, the various stones, particularly the gold. And, and then the precious stones become very critical to the temple, don't they? They become very critical to the priest's breastplate. They become very critical to the description of the new Jerusalem. So there's the elevation, there's the river, there's the tree of life, there are the stones, there's the priestly function. When we go into our Old Testaments, we see that the priests were to keep, to guard and to keep. That's exactly what Adam was to do with the garden, to guard it and to keep it. And then there's the whole matter of the eastern entrance to the Garden of Eden. When they were banished, Where were the cherubim placed? At the eastern entrance with flaming swords so that no access could be found back into that immediate presence of God. Where was the entrance of the temple? On the east and the holy of holies and the furthest place to the east. And when you get into Revelation 21 and 22, again, the east is critical. All of these patterns are not accidental. Every one of them is intentional. Those are just a few. So do we really have to have the word temple found in Genesis 3 to believe that that was a place God intended to dwell with man before he fell? No. It is the garden temple. And that's what so sadly has been banished. And so in the second place, just a few more comments and elaboration about banishment. How sad was that? How sad was it that Adam and Eve could not go back into the garden? Don't we even as believers who are forgiven regret and find ourselves overcome with remorse at the sins that we committed in the past? How remorseful it must have been for them to see perhaps at a distance the cherubim And to say to each other, we can't go there. We'll never get back in there. The cherubim would kill them. And that was all 
designed to picture that there is no access to God again in that kind of intimacy unless He Himself brings it to pass. And of course, He did. But they were banished. They were forgiven. I want to emphasize that again. I want anybody to go away from here and say, so Pastor Ted basically suggested that Adam and Eve weren't saved. They got kicked out of the garden and they went to hell. No, this God who is determined to dwell with his people comes into the garden, comes in in the cool of the evening and says, Adam, where are you? He knew where he was. But Adam needed to answer that question. And we all know where Adam and Eve were. They were hiding. They had covered themselves with fig leaves in a futile attempt to try to somehow um, deal with their sense of shame and guilt. And God says, that's not going to work. I'm going to have to kill an innocent victim and shed blood and use the skins of that innocent victim to cover you. And as I indicated, that was symbolic of the coming death of the Savior whose blood was shed in our behalf, which we remembered this morning. I'm going to have to clothe you in a perfect righteousness. And so those animal skins were symbolic. And by faith in a coming Redeemer, they were truly justified. They were truly forgiven. Their sins were truly atoned for by the coming Lord Jesus Christ. But it's God who moves to restore this. But what a sad thing it must have been for Adam and Eve to see that they were banished from the garden and they had forfeited that immediate intimate communion with God. And yet, he was gracious. He saved them. And he told them how difficult life would be now on a cursed earth. But let me conclude by saying some things that I trust will be applicable to your heart this morning. Particularly, let me say something to those of you who are not Christians. I hope you're hearing a word of consolation. I hope you're hearing about hope. We do not live in Eden any longer. We do live on a sin-cursed earth. We do live in a hostile environment. Would you just watch the news for one hour this week and see what's happening worldwide? See what's happening with the morality and the values and the ethics of this nation. See what's happening in the outbreak of violence and rebellion against all authority. See what's happening in the persecution of Christians. The list can go on and on. We live on a sin-cursed earth among a vast majority of people who hate God and hate His people. And we can't get into Eden. But here's the good news to those of you who are not Christians. Eden can come to you in the sense that, as we sang, God still dwells with His people. The writer to the Hebrews speaks about the privilege we have to enter into the Holy of Holies without fear. 
And we who are Christians enter that place and are there this morning. And we can commune with this great God who first met with Adam and Eve. We can know Him as our loving Heavenly Father who is committed to care for us. We can have communion with God. And in a sense, we can dwell with Him. And you, my friend, if you're not a Christian, can have restored communion with God. You can have the privilege of going into the Holy of Holies and to feel and sense the very presence of God by faith. And here's the most amazing thing. If you trust in Jesus, God Himself will come into you. He'll come into you. He dwells in us. And He dwells in the church. If I had time, I would show you 1 Corinthians three sixteen. The church is called the temple of God. Now, none of this is equal to the glory of the first temple in the Garden of Eden. And none of it is equal to the temple that we will someday enjoy on the renewed earth. But it's still a temple. It's still the presence of God. It's still communion with God. And so I say to you, my dear unconverted friends, Please just be honest about the longing for Eden and quit thinking that it's in materialism, clothing, friends, employment, money, drugs, sex, vacation, and the list goes on ad infinitum. Please, please, please be honest enough with yourself to say, I do long for Eden. And I've been trying to find Eden in the wrong places. It's in Jesus Christ. And He is yours for the asking. And if you call upon His name and turn from your sins and say, Jesus, I need you to pay for my sins. Otherwise, I'm going to pay for them for all eternity. Jesus, I need your perfect righteousness because my righteousness is filthy rags. Jesus, I'm going to take you seriously where you say, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I'm coming. I'm going to take you seriously when you say through the Apostle Paul, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm calling. I'm calling right now. And you will have God as your friend. And the Holy Spirit will dwell in you. And you can become a part of a temple like this where the Holy Spirit dwells corporately among us and you can have a taste of Eden it's just a taste but it's enough of a taste to make you long with all of your heart for more of it so how do I conclude I conclude this way I was thinking this morning and reflecting again what is my burden for this sermon What is God's burden for this sermon? I think God's burden for this sermon, it's dangerous to say this, isn't it? But I think I can say this on biblical grounds. I think God wants us to be astounded. Astounded that He would dwell with us. That He would choose to dwell with us even if we weren't fallen. I think Adam and Eve should have been astounded. We're just creatures, Eve. He made us out of the ground and he made you out of my rib. We're creatures, we're finite. 
And he wants to dwell with us. What should we say who are not merely finite creatures, but fallen creatures? God desires to dwell with his people. We should be astounded at it. Astounded. And we should also see that we, in our federal head, Adam, are responsible for our own personal banishment from that presence. I think that's what one of God's burdens is. That we would be astounded. That he would do what he did in order to restore the privilege of dwelling in his presence. Once again... What in the world does this sermon have to do with the first advent? I thought you were going to preach about the birth of Jesus. I am. I'm telling you that unless Jesus comes and lives and dies in our place to pay for our sins and to reconcile us to God, we can't ever enjoy dwelling in his presence. It's essential. And we have to see what we forfeited in the Garden of Eden in order to appreciate the desperate need for God to send His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in the Old Testament, as Pastor Mark and Jonathan will make clear, in the Old and the New Testament, the the whole idea of God dwelling with His people through an atonement for their sins, through reconciliation, through justification, and adoption and sanctification, was all purchased by the Lord Jesus That's what he wants us to be astounded with. And I just want to ask you this question. If God communing with us was so important to God, do you deny that? Do you deny that his desire for us to live in his presence was important to his agenda? You don't deny that. That's what I said we should be astounded about. If God so desires for us to live in his presence, how much should we desire to live in his presence? There's something very incongruous about our feeble, faint longings for God in contrast to his omnipotent, infinitely gracious longings for us. God went through all of this. God sent his only begotten son to live and die for us so that he might dwell with us. He sends the Holy Spirit into our lives so that we might dwell with him. And we can barely find five minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes a day to dwell with him. It's pitiful. It's criminal. It's unthinkable. It's incongruous. Oh God, give to this poor preacher in this congregation desires to live in your presence in a way that's commensurate with your desire for us to live in your presence. Grant us that, God. And I'll give you one more application. If God desires to live in people so that someday they will live in his presence, 
and has purpose to bring that to fruition through, listen to me carefully, through missions and evangelism, which are really one and the same thing, and only, only through missions and evangelism. And if through missions and evangelism the Holy Spirit comes to make his abode and tabernacle in human souls who become a part of a corporate temple so that communion can begin. If that is the case, then is it not true that being an instrument in evangelism, be it here in Owensboro, Davis County, Evansville, anywhere where we live or anywhere in this world, Is it not true that we have the privilege of building the temple of God? If the church is in some sense the temple of God and the church is made up of those who turn from their sins and come to Christ, we can be temple builders. And we should be temple builders. So as we leave this today, I just want you, to, I want you to go away. I hope some of you were there already. Some of you may be ahead of me in my understanding of this. I, I don't doubt that. But I want those of you who are not to go away astounded that we brought about our own banishment from the Garden of Eden, which was designed to be a temple. But God is going to have his temple. God who could have just wiped us all out and said, I'm done with humanity. As soon as he put the angel with the flaming sword at the outskirts of the eastern edges of Eden, he could have said, that's it. We're done. But he didn't. And he's going to have a temple. And we have a privilege of living in the temple. It'll be God in us and us in God. The Almighty God and the Lamb are the temple. And yet the Holy Spirit is in us and we are the temple. So, good news. Good news. In the Garden of Eden, it was once Emmanuel, God with us. And then those righteous souls of the Old Testament longed for and prayed in the words of the song we sang this morning, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And he came. And he's coming again. And it's all about God dwelling with his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for wonder of wonders caring about dwelling with us. It really is beyond our imagination to dwell with the likes of us, sinful people. But we thank you for such grace, such amazing grace. Lord, please, please again, we pray, help us to desire to dwell in your presence and help us to desire to help others become a part of that temple. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.